the role of IT leaders will be understanding what exactly the challenges of businesses are and how to convert the traditional businesses into digital businesses. I think the successful organizations of the future will probably have lot of knowledge of digital in the organization's board and I wouldn't be surprised if the digital leaders of future start to becoming the CEOs of the organization. You really have to inspire people, trust teams and empower teams. Those kind of softer elements are going to be more and more important in the high performing teams of the future. Humility and learning mindset are very much linked. If you don't have humility, you can't have a learning mindset. This is here on TV. My name is Hendrik Dickers. I'm here today with Tarun Kohli, who is currently the Managing Director and the Head of New Propositions at Swiss Re. A very warm welcome, Tarun. Thanks, Hendrik. Thanks for having me here. Tarun, you grew up in Delhi. You studied pharmaceutical engineering at Varanasi and you have an MBA from the Indian School of Business in Hyderabad. Uh, you started your career at Satyam in Pune and then went to Melbourne, Australia. And in 2005, you uh, moved to the UK to work for the IT of BP with our friend Charlie Forte. In uh, 2015, uh, you moved to Prudential UK as the CTO and uh, since January 2021, you have, uh, you have a top position at uh, Swiss Re. So Tarun, tell us a bit more about yourself, your background, because I mean, you're really a citizen of the world, right? Um, th thanks, Hendrik. Um, yes, so it's been a very interesting journey when I, when I look back last, you know, 22, 25 years. Uh, I grew up in Delhi and then uh, went to Indian Institute of Technology, Varanasi, to do my pharmaceutical engineering. And Varanasi is quite a magical city. It's got quite a good contrast of uh, you know, what now in the corporate world we call the, the heart of mindfulness. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the, the campus recruitment took me to uh, Pune to join Satyam Computers. Uh, I was in India for a year and a half and then uh, went to Melbourne as Satyam's, you know, one of the very first employees to set up the center there. Uh, I was engagement manager for uh, one of the very marquee retail accounts called Cole Smire. Uh, the next four or five years I was based out of Melbourne also went to Shanghai to share lessons learned from, uh, from Melbourne. Uh, so that was quite a fruitful journey because uh, Australia at the time had not really opened to outsourcing and offshoring. So we were able to come up with very innovative solution like, uh, you know, renting out an office, just deposit, you know, client's office and showing them how this whole thing can work and uh, help in their efficiency journey. In 2004, the MBA bug hit me very hard and uh, uh, I kind of, you know, wrapped everything up uh, from Melbourne and uh, went to Indian School of Business with my uh, four-month-old son and, and wife. So it was uh, quite a big decision from a, from a personal perspective. But then 15 months uh, were full of, you know, learning uh, journey and I really enjoyed my stint uh, at at. Indian School of Business, equipping my equipping myself with the uh, with the uh, skills that MBA provides, and then uh, the the career plan was that I had good experience of the ASPAC, wanted to get more exposure to the West, and therefore accepted the offer from BP to to come to UK, uh, mm -hmm. and then uh, for the next ten and a half years I was at BP doing various uh, technology leadership roles. Uh, you mentioned, you know, Charlie Forty, uh, the, the roles and the Charlie were full of learning. Uh, when I look back into my BP stint, uh, the, the last three, four years were really the, the heart of digital transformation where we leveraged big data analytics to address board level challenges. Um, then I joined Prudential in 2015 uh, and uh, as a CTO and director of investment portfolio, for Prudential Global Data Services, which was the mm -hmm. at the time the digital services arm for the Prudential UK businesses. So it serviced the asset management business, MNG, it serviced the Prudential UK business, it serviced the real estate business. And that was a very interesting journey because uh, one of the first thing I did was starting the digital foundations program, you know, getting the foundations of these emerging technologies right. 
Um, five, a little over five years at Prudential. Uh, I then made a move again um, as, as I joined Swiss Re, where I'm currently as the managing director and, and head of new propositions. So it's been a very interesting journey. A key element that also happened in 2017 was uh, getting my first net role uh, for Mishipay, which is a startup. Um, so I became the board member and non-executive director for Mishipay, uh, which is funded by American Express, not a capital. And it was completely an eye opener for me to see the startup ecosystem, the vibrancy, the optimism, the laser focus on monetization. So with Mishipay for 18 months in a part-time you know, board member role, and then I was invited to be the executive board of advisor for Puppet, which is a significantly large you know, startup. It is about a billion dollar markup. So it was good mm-hmm. to be uh, part of that advisory group. So you know, having a, a good experience of the startup ecosystem and taking those learnings and injecting them into day's uh, job, as well as taking the structure of the day's job of the corporate world and supporting the the founders of the startup had been quite a quite a good transformational journey. Okay. Now, before we jump into uh, the work that you've done at at Prudential, give us a bit of context. What kind of company is Prudential UK? Because that's what we want to focus on in this conversation. How many people? How many uh, millions of revenue? What are, what are we talking about here? So when I joined Prudential in 2015, uh, it was large conglomerate. Um, the the mm-hmm. motto was, you know, quite clear: uh, helping people to get the most out of uh, their life, helping them to grow their assets, helping them to grow their wealth, and really supporting them to reach their savings goal. Uh, Prudential has been into a very big transformational journey. Um, so. I would probably characterize that, you know, from 2015 to 2019, uh, that was a big transformation within the Prudential Group. And then in 2019, the Prudential PLC uh, split its UK businesses uh, where the MNG PLC as an entity was born. Uh, mm-hmm. And Prudential PLC is still going through rapid transformation where this year it is going to uh, further demerge its UK US business called Jackson. But if I go back into you know, that time in 2015, 2016, um, uh, there was no cloud. You know, there was no leverage of emerging technologies like AI, machine learning, big data and analytics. It was quite a legacy footprint, uh, especially for the UK businesses. So one of the first thing that you know, I did was establishing what I called as a digital foundations program, which was taking through to cloud we struck up a good partnership with Apigee, which was later bought by Google to establish an enterprise-wide API platform. And then we also spearheaded um, with these foundations a move to a platform play. Three years since 2015, um, we were quite proud that Prudential was on a journey where the legacy heritage businesses was moving applications to Diligenta Bank's platform. The uh, asset management business applications were moved into BlackRock Aladdin's platform. The wealth businesses apps were moved into you know Sonata's you know Sonata's platform. So uh, quite a big drastic shift from a legacy all in-house keep on building data centers to a platform play and leveraging SaaS and PaaS as a service. And it was good to be part of that that transformational journey. And so it was really from legacy to API, cloud and analytics, right? Yes. But you were also very instrumental in, in what was called the reconnections program, which is quite fascinating. Let's, let's talk about that. What, what, what was the industry problem that, that you were uh, solving there at Prudential? So I think the seeds of that were born in my BP experience, where in 2012-2013, um, we started addressing a lot of BP's board level challenges using big data and analytics. So when mm-hmm. I came to Prudential and we asked, you know, the very senior stakeholders at the, the Prudential UK businesses, the heritage business, uh, one of the bigger problems for that business was the lost customers for the industrial branch business unit. And industrial branch um, as a business sold policies in the World War II era. 
So there were mm-hmm. there were you know millions and millions of policies that were sold, and um, there were several mainframe systems that had details or part details of those policies. Uh, but then you know a lot of those customers expired, and uh, there was this recognition that uh, we don't have details of the next of kin for a huge number of customers, and therefore we don't know what the liability of the IP book is. So, uh, you know, I was always interested in in just understanding what board level challenges are and then really seeing whether there could be a technology component that can enable or help solve that challenge. And in this particular example, uh, we used a leading big data and analytics provider where the team actually ingested about 500 million plus records from 11 different mainframe systems and married that data sets to the data that was publicly publicly available, you know, the death registry, the uh, post office records. And they were able to do two things. They were able to generate over a million uh, details of the next of kin, which then was given to the reconnections team to validate. But more importantly, they were able to define what the liability of the IB book is, which so far, you know, it was uh, it was an unknown and it was an estimation. And then, you know, that uh, that kind of, you know, pilot, that POC, that project was very, very successful. Uh, there was good appreciation that uh, was given to the team because uh, end to end, it was done in, in a record time of less than three months. So there was that partnership angle with the big data analytics provider that came into play. But then there was also a cultural mindset uh, learning where people felt confident that they can solve some of these problems that have existed for decades using the new emerging digital technologies. I, I still remember, you know, when we presented how this whole thing is shaping up, the chief transformation mm-hmm. officer at the time uh, suggested, he said, when the reconnections team are able to uh, reach out to the next of kin, uh, is it possible to you know, just video with their permission, of course, because we want to see the reaction on people's face that we have actually Mm -hmm. gone overboard by finding out all these people that we owed them money. So uh, Mm -hmm. I think there was a human angle that, you know, doing the right thing uh, was fantastic. But then there was a financial angle as well, where, uh, you know, yes, we were able to put uh, a dollar value to the liability of the IB book. But at the same time, we uh, some of these transactions actually costed us a lot more to maintain and therefore we were able to close some of these transactions that had remained open for several decades okay that's quite a pro I mean, is this an, I mean, i've never heard of uh, an industry problem like this is this a across the insurance industry that you have this uh, this liabilities are still a lot of companies affected by that today so I think all the organizations that existed in the World War II era would have sold, you know, what are now called the penny policies. Uh, uh, clearly, you know, for Prudential, it was, uh, you know, the, the famous man from the Prue that will go door to door and, and sell these insurance policies. But uh, uh, any organization, large organization uh, existing at that time uh, would have faced, you know, similar challenges. Yeah. Well, that's that's fascinating. Huh? Getting over half a billion records from eleven uh, mainframes, bringing that all to, <laughs> all together, combining it with public data, and then finding out the right information to uh, to give the money back to the people. Quite uh, quite impressive. Uh, tell us a bit about your role today at at Swiss Re, uh, Tarun. What is it that you're focusing on today? Yes, yeah, so I recently joined Swiss Re a couple of months ago. Um, and, and the focus is to establish this new unit called, called the New Propositions. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the component of that unit will be to establish a, a rapid prototyping lab. Uh, but it is still early days as it's only, you know, the couple of months that, uh, that I've joined the organization. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, probably same time next year, I will be able to share some of the very exciting kind of, you know, initiatives and projects that, uh, that are going to be part of uh, my remit here. Okay. And you're focusing on transformation, but more from outside of the traditional IT. Is that correct? 
That's right. So this this role is outside, you know, the traditional IT, which in some way is uh, is uh, very different from the roles that I took at Prudential or or BP. Mm -hmm. Both of those roles were part of the traditional IT. This one is focused around you know group digital transformation, and uh, and one thing which I've learned over the years is that the digital transformation you know should start from the business. Um, mm -hmm. We don't need digital strategy for the business today. What we need is a business strategy for the digital world. And both are very different. Approaches to both are quite different. Uh, the first one, uh, which was clearly uh, something that I saw at very close quarters in my BP days, Prudential days, uh, has, a, has a tendency to be focused on efficiency or what I call as the incremental innovation. If you mm -hmm. start looking into a business strategy for a digital world, you start from the business um, and, and that's a completely paradigm shift. And I think that's where uh, the future is heading towards, uh, which I would call as the transformational innovation. Mm -hmm. So in your view, let's say in, 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 the, in the financial world, what is the best operating model then for IT and, and digital? Because I mean, it's becoming complex and it's, it's uh, business and IT are merging together, they're fusing together. So, so in your view, what is the, the in, in large financial institutes, how, what is the best operating model for IT? So I think as uh, most of the large organizations start going to cloud, to uh, you know, SaaS and PaaS solutions, then mm -hmm. the role of IT leaders will change. And the role mm -hmm. of IT leaders will be uh, understanding what exactly the challenges of businesses are and how to translate or how to uh, convert the traditional businesses into digital businesses. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so one of the examples you know, that, uh, that I experienced in Prudential was uh, you know, we were focusing at the time on optimizing claims management uh, how do we make sure that when people call for the claims, for the health insurance claims, that cycle time is shortened? And then uh, one of the very senior leaders, you know, gave this vision and he said, how about if we shift from optimizing claims management and health insurance to preventing claims? And that's a very different mindset shift. And um, then in the following years, uh, we uh, got a partnership done with Babylon Health. Babylon as the AI app then got rolled out in multiple geographies within Asia. But it was a completely paradigm shift. And I think that's where uh, I see the, the changing role of IT leaders. It's to spot a business opportunity which is very different from what the businesses have done you know, for the last several you know, years. Yeah. Now you are taking, let's say, the first steps to go from an IT role to much more of a business role. You see more people around you do that, that they move from IT to business and that they bring their the digital experience and knowledge and, and, and in that way support uh, the, the companies to become more digital? Uh, yes, I certainly feel that you know, it's, it's probably uh, an exciting time to be in what I would call as you know, the digital or, or, or to be in the IT space. Uh, mm -hmm. My take is that you know, when you look into last five years, all organizations that have reached trillion dollar markup are organizations which grew to be the platform or the ecosystem place. And mm -hmm. I think um, the successful organizations of the future will probably have a lot of knowledge of digital in the organization's board. And I wouldn't be surprised if the digital leaders of future start to become or start to take roles of becoming the CEOs of the organization. There was a time, um, you know, 20 years ago when, you know, CMOs will become, uh, you know, the will be in the succession plan of CEOs, then CFOs were there, CEOs were there. I think now, uh, my take is that in coming years, the digital leaders will be rightly placed to occupy that coveted position of uh, leading the overall organization. Yeah. 
Let's talk a bit more about data and data analytics. It's one of the areas of your uh, expertise as well, uh, Tarun. So if I speak to CIOs around, around the globe, I'm still um, uh, stunned sometimes how immature organizations are dealing with data, how data is still all over the place. I mean, I, was, uh, I, was, I, was, I worked at SAS Institute 20 years ago. And we were building data warehouses 20 years ago. And still today, the organization of data is not there. And so the optimal uh, getting insights and, and uh, out of data and monetizing data is still not there. What, what, is, what is your view on, on where we are in, let's say, the maturity of organizations of managing and exploiting their, uh, their data? Yes, yeah, so I think the, the technology is there. Um, mm. So I think it's less about overcoming technological barriers. Uh, I think the challenge is on the software side. I think the challenge is on the mindset sh mindset shifts of how do we leverage big data and analytics to solve the board level challenges or to solve mm. the um, uh, business uh, challenges or to actually have this as an enabler to pursue business opportunities. Um, and that was a learning, you know, from my BP experience. Uh, you know, BP at the time, uh, you know, struck a partnership with, uh, you know, Palantir, a big, big data and analytics organization. And it was very interesting because that was something no one had done before at BP. And we uh, were approaching very senior business leaders and we were asking them, what is the biggest technological, what is the business, uh, biggest business problem? And they will immediately refer back that, you know, everything is okay from the IT side. And then we will try to push the conversation to, no, no, what is your biggest business challenges? And each of the business unit at the time, you know, had kind of an you know, own share of challenges. Uh, uh, you know, for example, in the integrated supplier and trading, uh, you know, it, it, it had its own challenges. Uh, at that time. And then we leveraged that big data and analytics solution at the time to solve a number of those challenges. So I think the important thing here is we should not get big data and analytics. We shouldn't start with that as a solution trying to find the problem, which I've seen multiple times. You know, more recently, if you look into blockchain, uh, you know, when I was at Prudential, I remember, you know, my team coming up with this blockchain solution for shortening cycle time for uh, for the bereavement process and i was like you know there is no lack of trust you know the data comes from the death registry you know everything else you know we have got the contract so there is no lack of trust and why do you want a blockchain solution and the, the you know i still remember people were trying to fit blockchain into everything they were thinking of you know this was about kind of you know two three years ago so i think the same hold true that we need to start with the business problem and then find out whether there is a technology solution for that problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's talk a bit more about yourself and, 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 and your management style. I mean, you have managed um, uh, teams uh, in several uh, organizations. So you're very, very experienced on, on that uh, level. But how would you describe your management style. How? What is your way? What's your uh, hidden secret uh, to build successful teams? So I would probably characterize those under uh, you know two categories. The first one is um, I try to go and see stuff firsthand. So a good example will be you know when I was at Prudential, I remember going to our contact center. Uh, which was up in Scotland uh, several times and listened to the customer calls. And no amount of slideware, no amount of insight can give you the experience when you listen to direct customer calls. You know, I still remember, um, you know, I listened to a call that lasted, you know, quite some time uh, about a pensioner trying to withdraw, you know, her money just before Christmas because she wanted to buy a car. And just listening to that call and seeing how, you know, the staff managed that call just opened a um, uh, lot of thinking, you know, a lot of opportunities for me. I could see digital opportunities uh, through and through as I, as I listened to that call. Um, the second one is, 
in terms of my 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 leadership style or or, or managing teams which i have seen that shift from uh, you know what was a more leading from the front when i was at bp to mm-hmm. now servant leadership now where i have focused on you know being authentic and uh, really empowering the team and inspiring them and that's something which i'm feeling personally more fulfillment as part of the journey so if i were to just share a story you know uh, in in my last role um i i remember we had you know i had two di- direct reports come to me and one of the direct reports you know was accountable for an initiative that needed help from a team member that was in the other direct reports you know team mm-hmm. and essentially they came to me for escalation they said you know this person said we know this initiative is important and that team member you know doesn't show up all the time he's you know not really focused on this really really critical initiative and so and then the other you know direct report person was saying yes but he has got you know other things to do as well blah 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 and it was interesting you know 60 seconds into the conversation i stopped them i said do we know how that person is feeling has any one of you checked whether you know there is everything going on in his kind of you know personal life is he okay have you checked whether he needs any support and i could still you know visualize the face on both of their looks because we closed the call in you know literally 5 minutes and and then the teams then came back to me said you know that was quite a good eye opener for them because i said you know the the business stuff will happen but it will happen if the people are okay it will happen if we start all conversation if we look into the business issues first from a softer side and that's the that's the learning that i have been doing for myself um that you know which is why i am a big uh, student of uh, you know servant leadership and uh, really kind of you know look up to simon sinek's uh, you know numerous videos and and attended the the launch of the infinite game in person but that's i think is the important leadership skill that will be required in future okay and so how would you do so so the traditional mba is more top down control and 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 command and control and you would say the the new authentic simon sinek uh way of 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 managing is more trusting people and and creating an environment for them to shine is that how would you would describe it yes i think we live it we live in a digital world and if mm-hmm. anything that this pandemic has taught us is that the remote working is here to stay you know even after the pandemic ends i think it will be the hybrid working and people will only go to office when they have got a uh, real need to collaborate when they really want to do kind of you know face to face coffee machine conversations rather than going to office and then sitting on your desk uh, all day long and when you look into that environment then you really have to inspire people you really have to trust teams you really have to empower teams and i'm i've got the strong belief that you know people who love their job will work hard because they are passionate about reaching the next goal post they believe in the purpose and if people don't get inspired then them working hard might lead to stress and that's a big leadership role that we all need to play how do you yes we need to get to the business outcome yes we need to have a bias for action yes we needs to be results oriented all of those were i think uh, what we have learned in our traditional kind of you know business education or our traditional kind of you know roles but how we get to those i think has changed and getting to those by targeting the softer side by inspiring people by establishing high performing team that trust each other by making sure that the collective output of the team is far better than the the single output of any team member and uh, if it results in the unhappiness of team that's not worth the effort uh, so i think those are something which are going to be important ingredients for success in the future world in my last role at at prudential uh, i used to also have this happiness index and i would share a lot of kind of you know research material uh, 
Initially, people were a bit confused. You know, why do I always talk about happiness? You know, what does that do with the corporate world? And I was like, mm-hmm. no, you know, I really want to ascertain, you know, if we are all happy uh, and, you know, we will have happiness movements and we will have a lot of kind of, you know, different tactics. But I still remember that that I could see my leadership style change. And I think uh, those kind of, you know, softer elements are going to be more and more important in the teams, in the high-performing teams of the future. Yeah. Now, if I would go back to your the teams that you work with now or in the past, and I would ask them, tell, tell me the, the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, uh, of Tarun, what do you think they will say about you? It's one of my favorite questions. So, uh, I think, uh, you know, they will, they will say that uh, I focus on some of these softer side uh, probably too much. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, which, uh, you know, I, uh, I have been given uh, both positive and negative feedbacks from, from the team. The second mm-hmm. one is, uh, which I learned uh, from Charlie Forty, the second one is that in all my regular team meetings, I always start with the external business context. And then I move into the internal context. So the, the, the context of the external market landscape, then moving into the internal business context, and then zooming into how the teams can relate their delivery to both. And I think that's mm-hmm. one thing which teams have appreciated a lot. They have always appre- they have appreciated how, you know, I would share some of the headlines that have resonated with me from the external world. It could be the acquisitions by Amazon. It could be uh, stuff ha- happening in the private equity VC space. But I always start my team meetings with the external market landscape. And I think that's one thing which teams have, uh, have consistently appreciated. Now, Tony, you, you talked about happiness and that you have a happiness index for, for your team, which is quite fascinating. So, but what does that makes you happy? And, and let's first talk about the professional side and then maybe also on, 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 the, on the personal side. So professionally, what is it that makes you happy? And, and, and that's another way of asking what really drives you in your work? Yes, you know, doing hard work on stuff that matters to the business is what drives me um, or, or motivates me. You know, if I'm able to see that, you know, this is the work that I'm accountable for and that work is, you know, going to either generate more revenues or will help the business move into new geographies or will, uh, you know, will, will help in kind of, you know, coming up with new ways to monetize. So all of those, uh, you know, uh, I could see elements in my in my prudential days. Um, the way to get there is by making sure that the teams are helping me get there by being happy, by being motivated, mm-hmm. by being inspired. Uh, so that's the kind of you know that's the slight nuance about it. Uh, what drives me crazy is. Uh, you know, when we have got a lot of work that doesn't add value. And uh, it's interesting, one of my team member, you know, we uh, we were establishing digital labs. I established a digital lab, you know, at, at PGDS uh, as, as well, you know, trying to do that same here in my, my new role. And one of my uh, team members said me something. He said, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. And similarly, a clickable prototype is worth thousand slides. And, and he was absolutely true. And I think in large organization, there could be tendency to, to do a lot of slides. But uh, one thing I learned by being involved in the startup ecosystem was absolutely laser focus on every hour of work done by any member of the team, because typically early stage startups have got very few team members has to have a direct result on the monetization. And, and I think that's one thing which uh, clearly we can take as a learning from the startup ecosystem. Okay. Now, you told me and I, I was uh, that you were, how do you call it, bitten by the MBA buck? Was that what the, 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 the metaphor that you used? But lifelong learning is very important for you. I mean, you, you didn't stop with your MBA. Learning for you is a, is, is a yearly thing. Tell us a little bit about that, because I, I think that's quite fascinating. 
yes, so, you know, when I came back from Melbourne and then spent 15 months, you know, doing my MBA, I then, then did, while I was doing my MBA, a couple of certifications. And then Indian School of Business also sponsored me for a, a global consulting practicum course at Wharton. That was quite a, a fulfilling experience. I could see that, you know, that investment of time and this is, you know, leaving Melbourne and then, uh, you know, foregoing that kind of, you know, that years plus salary. And then, as you know, MBA is quite expensive as well. I came out of that, that it was all worth it. Mm-hmm. And then that started a journey of a lifelong learning experience. So when I was at, at BP, um, I was very fortunate to be picked up for the BPCIU of the Future program. So there were three modules at the Boston University School of Management. There was one module where we went to Haas Business School uh, at, at Berkeley. Uh, we also got opportunity to meet, you know, some of the very senior players in the startup ecosystem like, you know, Vinod Khosla. We also went to Google, met the head of Google Oceanorium team, which was trying to map the ocean like Google does at, at, at Street View. So very good learning experience. And then, uh, you know, when I came to Prudential, uh, again, uh, I was very fortunate to be uh, put into the group wide impact program which uh, took me to Hong Kong. We had a module there, took me to Denver, had a module there. Uh, Then Prudential also was, uh, uh, you know, I was very fortunate for Prudential to sponsor me to Singularity University. So uh, Singularity, you know, based out of NASA campus and for a week, eight days, I was able to interact with some very leading futurists, which completely kind of, you know, opened the, 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 the world of possibilities. Um, so I am a big kind of, you know, champion of a learning mindset and something which I encourage my teams. Um, uh, I have been encouraging my teams at Prudential and, and even now. But then more importantly, it's how do you apply that learning into your day-to-day job? I think that's the bit which needs that extra effort. You know, it's easy to, uh, you know, build a network. Is it's, it's, it's relatively easier to to go into a structured program and, and learn new skill set. More importantly is uh, a reflection, a self-report that I try to do to say, okay, now a year from that learning, you know, what has changed? You know, is there anything that has changed in how I'm thinking, how I'm applying, how I'm talking, how I'm building my new network? So um, yes, it's been a very interesting experience. And then um, 18 months ago, uh, you know, I did a little bit of a paradigm shift where I decided to do a teacher training certification for yoga, for vinyasa yoga, which was, uh, which was quite a, uh, a very different learning experience in its own kind. Mm-hmm. So you're a certified yoga trainer now? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and I understand that that's, that that's, uh, runs in the family. Your father was a yoga trainer as well, no? Yes. So, you know, when my, my father uh, got into this quite late and he was kind of forced because of his health issues, you know. So when in India at that time, the retirement age was 58. So when he retired, then he was having a lot of health issues. One of his uh, childhood friend forced him to go to a yoga center. And, um, and then he was very punctual. He will, you know, start doing yoga in the morning and then later on morning and evening. And then within five years, he became a yoga instructor himself. And then he will hold these free yoga camps. And every time when I talk to him, it is so good to see the fulfillment that he's getting by giving people's health back. Um, and what he has taught me is the, is the power of contentment, you know, and, and that's a little bit related to the happiness index in the corporate world. But when you get into this, this uh, realm of yoga, you know, there is this uh, power of contentment. Uh, uh, it's, it's linked to mindfulness as well. And that's what, um, you know, one day I was, I was talking to him and I said, you know what, in India, you were able to do all those free yoga camps. But in UK, if I were to do that, you know, later in life, uh, I would need a certification. I might not be able to get the certification at that time. So let me start the process now with the plan that, you know, I, I might be able to, you know, follow his full footsteps and, and hold kind of, you know, community classes and give people health back. Can you talk a bit more about this power of contentment? Because that's an interesting concept, right? Um, 
Yes, so it is essentially, uh, yes, you know, focus on the end goal is very, very important. But if we are only focused on the end goal and try to get that by all means, that might not be right. And therefore, being uh, or holding on to your value system and then making sure that you get the, you get there by doing the right thing and therefore by enjoying the journey becomes far more important than the end goal itself. And mm-hmm. one of the themes of contentment is, um, you know, to be happy in what you have. And it's a, it's a little bit philosophical or a little bit spiritual as well. Um, if you allow me to go into that space, it is actually... It, it is actually, you know, having faith in, uh, in a, in a, in a, uh, in a supreme uh, being and mm-hmm. being okay and having trust that everything will work out to be to be fine, as long as you are doing the right thing, as long as you are holding on to your value system, as long as you are holding on to your beliefs, and uh, and that's what you know I've I've learned from him, and I I continue to learn that every day, you know, he's now um, 76 plus, but uh, every day when I speak to him, there is, uh, there is a learning or two that, uh, that always comes along. Now you talked about happiness in the professional uh, space. Let's talk a bit more about happiness in the private space. I understand, I mean, yoga is important for you. Meditation is important for you. Your father is important for you. What else is it that, that really makes you happy in your life? Um, so being able to balance professional and personal life i think is uh, is very important to me and mm-hmm. and personal i would characterize as you know being able to spend time with with family as well as being able to take care of of myself you know take care of the health so i'm very fortunate um, to have a very loving family so i've got uh, you know a 17 year old son who is uh, who is very good in badminton? So uh, we try to make sure that every weekend, you know, every Saturday, every Sunday, you know, we 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 go for a badminton match. Uh, you know, if if I win, I'm very happy. If he wins, I'm even happier. Um, and uh, and my target is, you know, just to make sure that I at least win one out of the six matches we play every uh, every time. So. Uh, so that's kind of you know make make me very happy. I've got twin daughters as well. You know they're 13 years old, and uh, you know spending time with them is is definitely you know makes me makes me very happy. But then there is also a lot that you know we can learn from children. Um, you know children don't take the baggage along, which sometimes we adults do. So if if they get um, you know if they get sad one day, they are absolutely fine, thrilled the next day. And I think that's something we can we can learn from the children. Curiosity is another thing we can learn from children. I have certainly learned from my children, uh, which which is something we should apply into the corporate world. We are very much focused in the corporate world to find uh, immediate answers uh, rather than focusing on the right questions. And then if the questions are right, they will get us to the right answers. And and I think that's what you know that that whole. A curiosity theme is something which uh, I have certainly learned from my children. Let's talk a bit more about values. I mean, you said that uh, living by your values is important. It's not only important to reach the goal, but all the journey to get there needs to be in sync and, 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 and with, with, with your values. So what are the core values that you are passing on to your, to your 17-year-old son and, and your twin daughters of 13? So I think... Uh... I would probably say a couple of things. I would probably say three things. Uh, mm-hmm. First will be first and foremost will be humility, uh, and that is something which uh, you know I have seen at very close quarters. Uh, you know some of the uh, board level roles that I did at the startup ecosystem, I saw their growth uh, when they were you know a three member team, a six member team, to when they really took off. And I saw that the founders were still very humble. And Mm -hmm. humility is so important because humility and learning mindset are very much linked. Uh, 
if you don't have humility, you can't have a learning mindset. So that is one thing which I, I keep on telling my, my 70 year old. Uh, the second one is authenticity. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is something which I've shared with my, with my team as well uh, in the past. You know, a lot of time when we ask people, how are you? It's just a formality. We want to actually immediately go and discuss the real thing. And uh, it's interesting that, you know, I reflected on that. I was doing exactly the same thing. Uh, And then I thought, let me just do a change. The next time when I am asking someone, how are you? I'm genuinely interested in the answer. And it's okay if that 30 minute meeting slot gets taken by seven minutes of just discussion. That's okay. Uh, and we will deal with the consequences later on. And that has completely changed the way I have started building relationships. Because sometimes when I ask people how they are and they start telling something, I actually become interested in what they're trying to say. Same goes true for the corporate messages. You know, I think the world that we are getting into, it's a very connected world. You know, people interact outside kind of, you know, corporate boundaries. And therefore, if the leaders are not authentic, then it's very difficult to build trust in the, not only within the teams, but even in the outside network. I truly believe that 10 years from now, the the, the way of working will be portfolio careers. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you would want how you attract the really high potentials, the people who are now graduating from the college, from the universities, to have your work as part of one of their portfolios. And for that, you know, having authenticity, having trust, having humility is really, really important. And the last one, which I keep on telling my kids is, you know, uh, do hard work. And, And don't just focus on the end result. You know, this is something which you would see kind of, you know, permeate in the many examples. Uh, but but I a lot of time when my son comes and, and says that, you know, either the test was difficult or, uh, you know, he's trying to prepare for a competitive exam. The only question I ask him, ask yourself, did you do your level best? And ask yourself what else you could have done better and implement that in in your kind of, you know, next test in your next competitive exam. OK, super. Now let's talk a bit more about your personality, uh, Tarun. And you shared with us that your, uh, your Myers-Briggs personality type, your MBTI, is you are an ESFJ, also known as a console. And these are people that have, uh, are extroverted, they're observant, feeling, and they have a judging personality. They're uh, attentive, people-focused, and they enjoy taking part in the social community. And typically, uh, the achievements are guided by decisive values and they willingly offer guidance uh, to others. Um, so quite an interesting profile, of course. And I'm going to uh, um, tell you what the theoretical strengths and weaknesses are of this profile. And you tell me if you recognize yourself in that, okay? So people with the ESFJ personality typically are, have strong practical skills. They have a strong sense of duty. They are very loyal, they're sensitive and warm, and they are good at connecting with others. Is that a good description of who you are? Yes, I think that's a reasonably fair description. Okay, and what stands out for you of uh, of all these uh, different characteristics? I would say, you know, practicality is the one that stands out uh, because okay. uh, a lot of time, you know, I have actually challenged the status quo. You know, is it, is it making sense? Are we doing mm-hmm. it because we have always done it that way? Or um, can we step back and ask, why are we doing this? Okay. Now, the interesting part, of course, is the development areas, the weaknesses. So let's uh, test these and tell me, where do you recognize yourself and how did you develop in that area? So sometimes people with this personality uh, type, uh, they will be worried about their social status. They can be inflexible. Uh, they can be reluctant to innovation and or to improvisation. They're sometimes vulnerable to criticism and often to needy 
or too selfless. So where do you recognize yourself maybe in the past and how did you develop yourself to overcome this as a, as a business leader? Yes, so, um, uh, you know, clearly would resonate with, you know, at times too selfless uh, because uh, I have got that tendency where I would want to be an active, you know, team player as well. You know, what I call mm -hmm. as, you know, being an active participant to the initiatives that, are not part of my accountability, but need my input for you know other people's agendas. Um, mm. It's interesting that you know when I took the MBTI, um, you know in my early days at BP, I was ENTJ, which was a lot more you know commander, a lot more you know hierarchical, and mm -hmm. uh, it was interesting when I took this recently and and without really uh, consciously. Uh, understanding the different MBTI profiles, I could see that the, the the journey that I have been for the last you know seven eight years probably has shifted me from a commander approach to a console approach, uh, and and I still truly believe that you know that's the that's the approach that will be much sought out after in in the new digital world that we are uh, we are living in. Um, so. I definitely have to be cautious about the two selfless because at the you know in the corporate world, if you're not able to meet your um, goals, then uh, it doesn't matter uh, you know for for how many other people you have helped. And there's always that fine balance. Uh, but but one thing which I am overcoming that uh, development area is by taking help from my team. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you know when when you empower your teams when you uh, inspire them then they can probably help you support you with more than what you expect than what you anticipate. Okay, Tahun, do you have a, a personal mantra, a saying that helps you in difficult times or that that guides you in 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 in, in your work and in your life? Um, you know the the only mantra that I can think of is uh, you know I have a I have a very strong belief that everything will come out okay at the end, and you know any challenge that I take, any task that I do, I have got that uh, that uh, that strong conviction that uh, mm -hmm. you know there is a there is a divine help uh, above me which will which will make sure that the end result is is good and. Uh, it's always been good, <laughs> uh, surprisingly. So I think that probably relates to some of the other attributes we discussed around, you know, contentment. But uh, but that's one thing which I strongly believe in. Okay. We already talked about your father, but who are the other people that you look up to and, and that you learn from? Who are the mentors in your life? Uh, so on a professional context, uh, you know, clearly, uh, as we mentioned before, Simon Sinek stands out. You know, I... I, I learned servant leadership uh, by by watching you know numerous uh, videos of Simon Sinek. I also had the opportunity to meet him in one of the book launches here in London, the Infinite Game, uh, uh, and and he continues to kind of you know inspire me a lot. Um, then closer to home, uh, you know, we we mentioned Charlie Forty. Charlie has been a big role model for me. Uh, in fact, it's Charlie who taught me. Uh, to make sure that there is always one eye on the external market landscape and one eye on the internal business context, and and Charlie would start his uh, team meetings, you know, the way that I now start my team meetings. So it's it's been a direct learning from him. Uh, the other learning from Charlie was the power of declaration. Uh, you know, he would uh, Charlie would use this phrase when uh, when I was working for him. Uh, you know, uh, if you want to, uh, you know, start this initiative, you don't need anyone's permission. You know, you start, if you, you, you see there's a corporate need and you see there will be a corporate benefit, you, you, you take that plunge and then park your car in the, in the lawn. Um, and then soon that car will be visible. So again, you know, something which I've uh, implemented numerous times over the, over the last several roles. And then Dana Deasy, who, um, you know, I had the opportunity to, to work with, um, of a work, work for, uh, you know, when, when I was at BP. Dana DZ at the time was uh, BP's group CIO. And I've mm -hmm. been in touch with Dana, you know, since then. Uh, but Dana taught that learning mindset. 
uh, Dana started this process of CARS, Corrective Action Review, where the whole purpose will be to learn. So we will have, you know, major crisis, we will have priority incidents, you know, there will be our people involved, uh, our partner people involved, there will be, you know, um, BP was kind of quite, quite complex in terms of the IT footprint. And we, when we had any of those incidents, then there will be a car which Dana will cheer. And it was quite clear that no one has to do any blame game in that car. The whole purpose of that car is how do we prevent that incident in the future? Um, and that's, you know, and then it's interesting, you know, when I was doing some uh, research uh, at the time, um, it's interesting how when you look into the aviation industry, there's this whole concept of learning, which is how the black box gets, uh, uh, you know, put into the aeroplane because they want to learn exactly in case of a disaster, you know, how it could be prevented, uh, which is very difficult from some of the other industries like, like medical, you know, where there is yeah. less structured approach to, to learning lessons. So again, you know, um, yeah, those are kind of, you know, some of the people that I definitely kind of, you know, look up to my, my parents, uh, Simon Sinek, Charlie Foti, Dana Deasy, and so many others, you know, who <laughs> help me learn each day, every day. Now, Tohun, you're clearly a very happy man and a very successful man. But what was, if you look back, the best thing that ever happened to you in your life? Um, I think now when I look back, being able to work in different parts of the globe was probably the best mm -hmm. thing. I hadn't planned it that way. But now with three kids, clearly, you know, there, there is a constraint that comes on, on the mobility. So I was quite lucky to have worked in India, to have worked in Melbourne, to have kind of an exposure to Shanghai, exposure to Singapore, exposure to Malaysia. Uh, you know, BP's uh, experience, uh, you know, gave me good exposure to Houston where you know, a lot of my team was based. So I think that was probably uh, the best thing, you know, at the time, having that uh, global exposure in my early career uh, mm -hmm. clearly was, was very helpful, something which I'm very grateful for. Okay. Now, it's not every day the sun shines, so we also have our bad experiences. So if you look back, what was maybe one of the worst things that happened to you in your life and, and, and how did you overcome it and what did you learn from it? So uh, in the corporate context, you know, when I was at BP, we had one of the largest uh, program uh, which was quite an ambitious program. It was called the Integrated Service Desk. We were consolidating some 15 different fragmented service desk, uh, scores of different problem management, configuration management uh, systems, all of that into one. Uh, and it was quite an ambitious task, uh, you know, to, to support the efficiency targets at the time. And that did not go to plan. And, and what happened was that... Uh, we were, uh, it was an outcome-based contract with a partner and, uh, and it became so bad that we had to apologize to very senior business leaders because, you know, uh, there was a lot of attrition uh, in our partner, you know, offshore uh, organization. Um, and I've got, you know, still big scars from that whole experience. <laughs> um, but it taught, it taught me so many things. It, it, it taught me that you know because because the world that we have we are going into you know we need our partners we can't do everything alone but when you partner with someone you don't relinquish your accountability and therefore you need to have the right lagging and leading indicators so that uh, you can have a, a hand on the pulse uh, the the other thing which uh, it taught me was you know stakeholder management uh, Bad news told early is not that bad news because you can do something about it. We let we left it too long. We knew mm -hmm. uh, first of all it was a surprise because we had no uh, leading lagging indicators that you know that that attrition has happened and the calls were taking so time so much time. The business was really really suffering. Secondly, we were in a state of denial. The teams was in a state of denial. I was in a state of denial. And then when we finally got the reality, we did not come up with, uh, with discussing with the business how we now get over it. We, we kept on delaying it. We, we tried 
testing one approach, uh, one failed approach, and another failed approach. So, uh, so yes, you know, when I when I look back, uh, I still remember, um, you know, Charlie calling me, Dana calling me. Uh, uh, we, we we declared that that program a disaster, but huge learnings, huge learnings. In fact, now, you know, when I uh, build teams, I actually focus on what difficult experiences people have got because uh, mm -hmm. uh, I think the, the, the high-performing teams of the future, you want people to have scars on their backs. You want people to have gone through those experiences because those are the learning moments that you cannot get from textbooks. In your personal life, what is it that you love most and what is it that you fear most? Um, you know, in personal life, you know, spending time with the family is is probably the uh, the, the the happiest time. You know, the uh, the the weekend badminton games and uh, you know playing with my twin daughters or uh, going you know on a long walk with uh, with my wife. Uh, happy moments. Um, in terms of fear, most uh, on a personal uh, on the personal side, you know. It's a little bit about my parents. Uh, you know, India still is going through a very bad COVID scenario, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, both my parents are seventy-six plus, and uh, uh, you know, I, I, I tell my uh, my father and mother every day not to step out of the house. Um, uh, they were definitely listening to me in the early part of of COVID, but now the now the, now this pandemic has been going for more than a year and a half, and. Uh, for their own kind of you know, mental well-being, they now go and walk around the block. But uh, still, still, you know, I, I just hope that India comes out of that pandemic um, quickly uh, yeah. because uh, that's something which keeps me awake at night uh, these days. You left India qu quite some years ago. So you go back on a regular basis? Yes, so I, I left India late 99 and uh, every year we have been going, you know, some year uh, uh, we have been going uh, two times. Uh, and uh, this is the only time that we have had a gap of, uh, of uh, more than 18 months because of, because of COVID. Mm -hmm. But yes, you know, India has got, uh, India has taught me a lot. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting place. Um, so uh, we do try to go there at least once a year. Uh, and actually uh, show our kids where their roots are. Yeah. Now, what, what is fascinating nowadays is that so many top leaders in, in tech companies and large corporates are from Indian descent. Eh? If you look at uh, uh, Sanjay Brahmawar at, uh, at Software AG or look at Google and Microsoft and so on, I mean, the top, top guys, uh, uh, many of them are from Indian descent. Why is that? And in how, what's, what's your view on that? That's a very interesting question. Um, uh, I can only resonate that I think it's the it's the it's the value system of most of the people that uh, have grown up in India. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, still there is a very strong belief of uh, integrity. There is a very strong belief of contentment. There is a very strong belief of. Uh, 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 you know, humility, uh, doing the right thing, you know, helping uh, or, or the joy of, of giving. Uh, in fact, there is an institution in India which is called the Art of Living, uh, which has got its branches kind of, you know, all, all over the world. So I, I can, I mean, this is my take, which is, mm -hmm. you know, when you look into uh, bigger things in life, having these value system can get you to the top position because you're not focused on getting to, to the top position by all means. You know, it's interesting how many people knew Satya Nadella before he became the group CEO of Microsoft. You know, he was not, he was not a, a very popular or very known personality. Same holds true for, you know, Sundar Pichai. Uh, so I think uh, this is my belief. Uh, I've never had the opportunity of, you know, speaking to any any of any of them, but this is my belief that they were probably focused on doing the right thing, uh, and then the journey got them there, rather than getting to the top position by all means, and therefore yeah. leaving a lot of kind of you know dead bodies of your teammates behind in pursuit of that top post. 
So Tarun, these videos are watched by uh, many people around the world and, and, and many of them are young, ambitious uh, professionals that want to become the digital leaders of the future. So what would your advice be with, with your 20 plus year of experience? What uh, would you advise young, ambitious professionals if they want to become CIOs, CTOs of the future? So my advice will be aim high, you know, um, because if you aspire uh, big things, then you will definitely get there. The other one will be as the young leaders get into their busyness of corporate life, uh, they need to make sure they don't lose that thinking time, uh, you know, that introspection time. You know, it's interesting. One of the advice I gave, you know, a lot of my friends as well as my team members during pandemic was I said, if you can't go outside, go inside, connect to your inner self. Uh, and I think that's very, very important. The other will be curiosity. And, you know, framing the right questions becomes a lot, lot more important than rushing to get the answers. And the last one, which I would uh, advise, uh, you know, people joining the workforce, it's really important to have a variety of experience. You know, uh, mm -hmm. doing the same thing for, for 10, 15, 20 years uh, doesn't give you that exposure than having a whole variety of experience. You know, if I were to look back, you know, I would probably would have done a stint in, you know, private equity or, or, or VC space. Uh, I was quite fortunate that I was able to get involved into the startup ecosystem, which has given me immense learning. So having kind of, you know, a traditional corporate role, having a startup ecosystem role, having a private equity VC role, the more variety of the roles are, the more learning opportunities they will bring and then most importantly, have that learning mindset to absorb those learnings as you go along in this journey. Now, Tarun, you are an, an active member of CIONET in, in the UK. You're in our advisory board. Why do you spend time in our community? Why is uh, being active in the community important for you? Uh, it is uh, primarily two things. One is to keep on building the network. Um, mm -hmm. And I think uh, the world that we are entering into, uh, the network or the social capital that you build, both on a professional and a, a personal side, uh, will be priceless. Mm -hmm. And the, and the second one will be, uh, you know, to to learn and share my own experience. To you know, I have learned so much from this community ever since it was founded many, many years ago. And I would want to kind of, you know, keep on sharing my lessons learned, learn more things along the way. And therefore, uh, you know, I, I tend to become uh, uh, actively involved. Okay. And on that note, Tarun, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your vision, your experiences, your professional views, your personal views. I really, really enjoyed it. And I look forward uh, to, uh, to have a nice dinner, a Siona dinner together again in London. Uh, thank you so much for now. Thank you so much, Hendrik. Thanks. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.